I'm your host, Seth Day. I use he, they pronouns, and you're listening to Rad Child Podcast. Today, we are talking a little bit about invisible disabilities. We're talking about disabilities this month and today specifically, um, invisible disabilities. So I have some lovely guests here with me who I'm going to invite to introduce themselves. And we're just going to say our name, our pronouns, where we're from, uh, and a little bit about um, your disability. And we're going to get into whether or not you actually identify as disabled or not later, but for the sake of terms for now. Um, Yeah. So I guess we can, I guess we'll just go across the board for now. We'll start with Johnny, if that's okay. Sure. Hi, I'm Johnny Blazes. I live in Somerville, Massachusetts, pronouns they and them. And I have a hypermobility spectrum disorder, which means in regular words that my joints tend to dislocate often and I have a lot of chronic pain. I'm a teacher at an elementary school. I teach social emotional skills and theater and dance and music mostly to upper elementary, so third through sixth grade, but I also interact with kids from K through two. And I also run a youth program at a circus school. So I teach teachers how to teach kids, and I teach kids too sometimes. Um, And I'm a parent of a four-month-old. Hi, my name is Leanna DeFulvio. I am a teacher, an elementary school teacher from Montreal, Quebec in Canada. And I am... um, a person with ulcerative colitis, which is under the spectrum of irritable bowel disease. So I have the, I guess my invisible disability is having to run to the washroom very often during the day and having chronic uh, pain as well. So it's a bit of a struggle in the environment that I work in. I'm Maggie and uh, I am, uh, I use the pronoun she, her, hers. And uh, I have, uh, I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan, but I live in Brooklyn, New York now. And I have something called uh, cervical dystonia, which uh, is a uh, movement disorder uh, located uh, in the spine and my neck, uh, and basically means that my brain gets funky signals uh, and uh, means that my muscles uh, in my neck are constantly activated. Um, And so I get uh, sort of constant twitching motions and uh, sort of a head tilt and things like that um, that are obvious to some people, not obvious to other people. So it's a sort of like on the, but often not obvious as a disability to many people. Uh, So it's sort of on the bridge between like an a visible and invisible disability. Um, I also have ADHD, uh, anxiety and depression, which, uh, Interestingly, I would not, I've had that for a lot longer than I've had the dystonia and probably would not have identified as someone uh, with a disability uh, when I only had uh, uh, anxiety, depression, ADHD. But but now that I've gotten more in the dystonia world, uh, definitely uh, do more uh, identify as someone with a a disability. Um, And I uh, work have worked a lot with kids over the years. I um, was a counselor at a summer camp for many, many years. Um, I worked as a teaching artist in New York City, have done a lot of work with uh, LGBT homeless youth. Um, And I have a four-year-old nephew who I hang out with as much as humanly possible. So, yep. (laughs) I think it's, it's interesting what you brought up, Maggie, about like identifying as disabled versus not because I when 
Um, growing up, I had severe ADHD. Now, you know, after years of medication and therapy and things, like it's very manageable for me. But as a kid, like in kindergarten, I would just walk up to you and kick you or draw on you or cut your clothes. I cut my hair off one day. Like I had no impulse control at all. Um, and like to a very, very severe degree. And it took until I was probably in my mid 20s and someone who had another learning disability identified as like mentioned that they identified as disabled. I was like, wait, I can identify as disabled. Like, I, I, I feel like there's this, I don't know, interesting narrative with especially with learning disorders, which is why, um, I mean, it's you're totally welcome to talk about them in this episode, but I'm going to have a whole episode just on them because I feel like it's such a it's such a specific and big thing. Um, and the same thing with anxiety and depression, in fact. But it's interesting how, how you can sort of identify or not identify. And it took me until I found out that I had narcolepsy to identify as disabled in a very similar way. Uh, it's like validated the other things all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is weird how that, yeah, for whatever reason. Just on the topic of disability versus not disability, I actually, I had panic attacks and anxiety all throughout high school. And I remember being called disabled the first time, and I still didn't register in my head what they were trying to say, but I was in grade nine, and I had had a lot of panic attacks, which forced me out of the classroom a lot because the teachers just didn't want to deal with it. And so I'd run out, and then a friend would run after me and try to help me um, like relax and calm down to be able to return back to class. And one time I was in the hallway of the school, and actually I was in the, the staircase, with my friend and she was helping me do some breathing exercises that I learned. And somebody walks by and they're like, are you so disabled that you have to be homeschooled? And I was like, where did that even come from? And they're like, Oh, you know, I just heard it. And this kid was probably in grade seven or eight. wasn't even in my grade. And I remember being so thrown off that somebody was judging me and they didn't even know me yet just from hearing something in the school and even seeing me in the hallway, they thought they had the right to call that out. And uh, yeah, it's still, it still marks me to this day. Yeah. That's so interesting because I feel like more often than not, at least like in the experience of people I know, it's almost the opposite happens where like people with anxiety or panic disorders, like people don't believe that they are disabled. At least that's my personal experience with my wife. Like her family doesn't, she has like severe depression, severe anxiety, and her family's like, stop being so stressed. And she's like, it's not. <laughs> oh, great, I'll do it. Flip, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Um, but that's and and I also think it's I don't know. It's it's interesting how like we come upon that that word, like whether we hear it or whether we have to like seek it out and find it. Like I feel like it can be. I mean, I feel like with any label, when something's imposed on us, it's very different than when we are choosing it. Like yeah. I, I feel. I chose to identify it as disabled. And that for me was very helpful because I felt validated that like, oh, my whole life, I've just been like falling asleep everywhere. And oh, it's because I'm actually like, I have a condition (laughs) that makes me fall asleep everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. And when is it like giving you access to services and access to community? And then when is it limiting your access to things like you know I think it can do both and uh, will do both uh, sort of you know, throughout uh, your life and in the way that it's used can, and I think that's the same with pretty much any label. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know what, having that label, I think I was actually fueled to to work it out and kind of get back to class and prove people wrong, the, especially the, since they were talking behind my back and it was, and it was only until university when I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis that I got those resources and got like extra time to do tests or 
I could leave the classroom whenever I wanted to use the washroom. And before I'd never had that. And I was like, well, had I known that I was going to be given the resources, then maybe I would have reacted differently, you know? And like you said, it was, it was more a choice. And then when they, you know, uh, one of my, I think therapists or a counselor at school said, well, have you um, applied for a handicap sign where you could park anywhere? And that way, if you have to go to the washroom when you're driving or when somebody's driving you around, then you don't have to, you know, put on your hazards and make a, make a scene. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. So when I applied for it, they said I wasn't disabled enough. That's always oh. a fun term too. Yeah. Okay. So when, when is it enough? <laughs> Well, you know? I, I had I have a friend who uh, has cerebral palsy, and they live in New York City, and where you can get when you're on the train, um, you can get discounted train fare if you're disabled. Mm-hmm. And until they used a mobility device, it didn't count. Yeah, yeah. Oh wow. You need yeah. to visibly. They needed to visibly be disabled. It's not like their condition changed in any way. But once they started using a cane, then they were. Then the next time they applied, they brought their cane with them, and then they were approved. So in Massachusetts, if you want to get. Um, tags for uh for handicap parking you need to walk with a or move with a mobility aid and part of my joint condition is that uh, I have a lot of pain in my wrists and shoulders so actually using a cane is more painful yeah. than not um, but th- I was going through a really intense treatment that made my wrists shoulders and knees so swollen that I could barely walk so I, I actually really legitimately needed to be able to park closer to yeah. places for um, a, a couple months while I was doing this um, this treatment and the doctor signed the note for me, but he said, just bring the cane with you to the DMV, even though I know it's too painful for you to use the cane, but just bring the cane so that, you know, cause I've marked off that you need a mobility aid and they'll want to see that you have the mobility aid with you. Yeah. So, wow. I had, I had, uh, thank God he was on your tags for a little while, but I had to like fake it. You know, I'd always carry my cane with me in case somebody like questioned me, which of course people don't really question you, but it was, you know, using a cane is actually worse for me. I remember once being on the train and there was um, someone using a wheelchair and this was uh, on the subway in New York City and they were having trouble getting on to the train. So they got up and pulled their chair through and someone called them out like, you don't need a wheelchair. And I was like, there are so many different reasons that people use wheelchairs. So tying back the, um, you know, are you disabled enough and handicapped parking tags and all that, uh, that that experience actually of getting those shots and being quite literally immobilized for the five weeks of the shots and then the months of recovery and then the second round five weeks of shots and months of recovery uh it that was sort of what pushed me into even considering that the word disability might apply to me um because it was the first time that my chronic pain stopped me from uh actually even walking at all because my chronic pain means that it hurts to go upstairs but I have to go up the stairs to get to work I, I don't have a choice there isn't an elevator I have to pick up my baby I have to open doors you know things like that and sometimes people open doors for me but if I'm alone I have to figure out how to use the blade of my arm to push the door open with the least amount of pain but when I had these shots I could not do any of those things so it started to really occur to me that often folks are temporarily dis- disabled or they are eventually disabled. We all have an opportunity at some point in our lives, whether middle, beginning, end, throughout, to experience what it's like to not have the same abilities as what's expected of us. And uh, once the treatment was over, I went back more or less to my normal level of chronic pain. The treatment didn't work. Um, 
but it was interesting that mm. suddenly now this word was available to me and uh, I still don't know how I feel about it for me. It's very complicated. I think probably there's layers of internalized ableism, but there's also layers of like, uh, you know, sort of Protestant mm-hmm. stoicism, like, well, it's not that bad. <laughs> like I'm not in as much pain as my neighbor. And so I can't really claim that word because I don't need a mobility aid or like I can walk the stairs or, you know, I just have to like take a deep breath before I open the door. So I'm not disabled. That's not fair of me to claim that word. So, so I still don't know how I feel about it, but it's kind of like, it it depends on the day and the pain level (laughs) and who I'm talking to. Yeah. That's, that makes a lot of sense because I feel like right in a space like this or a space with other people who identify that way, it's very easy to talk about it. Right. Like I don't, I don't label myself as disabled when I'm with my parents (laughs) because they, you know, it was always their people starving in Africa, eat your food. (laughs) You know, it's like someone has it worse. So you can't claim that thing. And I think it's making me think about, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but I grew up with very much that idea with my ADHD specifically of like, you can do anything. You can do the same things as everybody else. And it took me until I was in my mid twenties to be like, Oh, like, no, I can't. And like, that's not a bad thing, but I have been damaging myself by putting myself to the same expectations as able folk. Um, when I'm when my brain literally works differently. And so I'm curious if you think that whole, like you can do anything is harmful or helpful, or maybe a little bit of both. I don't know. I think it's well-intentioned, but like, yeah. What are feelings about that? I was thinking about this and I think that part of the problem with that particular saying is that it implies that uh, you can do anything and that it might look the same as how everybody else is doing it. And I think that for a lot of people, and again, I feel like, you know, and I talk about this a lot in, uh, in other, like with, uh, I, I work a lot with, uh, LGBT and and trans populations and it's like you know this is the same uh sort of thing where it's like what applies to people with disabilities actually applies to most people where it's like you can I think that people with disabilities may be able to do most things that other people can do but it might not look the same as how uh typical people are doing them So like, yes, they can run marathons, but it's not necessarily going to look like the way that, you know, typical people are running marathons. Uh, And I think that the problem with that saying is that the implication is that uh, your body is going to be functioning or your brain is going to be functioning in the exact same way as everybody else's. and I don't think that that's the case. And I don't think that that needs to be the case. Like, ideally, we would be celebrating the fact that uh, it's kind of awesome that we all are able to approach things in a different way. Um, and Seth knows that in our theater company, we always say, like, you know, take care of yourself physically and emotionally, uh, even if that looks yeah. different from what everybody else in the room is doing. Um, and I feel like for a lot of people, that's sort of, a, you know, a, a flip of the sort of idea that either you're participating or you're not, where it's like this idea that like, you can either be 
doing what the rest of the group is doing or you have to sit out and not participate. Um, because I think that for the most part, and I think that I've certainly, because I uh, didn't grow up with uh, my disability, with the like physical component of my disability, have had to sort of adapt a lot of the like things that I've been doing. And my sort of thing is like, find a way to play, like find a way to like get into the different, uh, different things that I enjoy, even if my body is like, you can't do that. I'm like, well, how can I do that? It, you know, is like figuring out a way to be like, all right, like, I am not going to be able to play soccer, but like in the way that I used to play soccer, but like, how can I play in a way that's still fun for me? And is still like, you know, keeping me engaged with the game and keeping me engaged with like, you know, what other people are doing, you know, be that like being the commentator, like having fun with that, or like, you know, throwing balls in from the sidelines, like whatever, you know, that may be. Um, it's finding the way to play. And I think that's very different from like, you can do anything because I'm not going to be doing like exactly what everyone else is doing. But I'm still there and I'm still playing and I'm still like a part of it. That makes a lot of sense. I love, I love that idea that it just, it doesn't need to look the same. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of something I've taught my kids. Well, like with uh, testing in schools and everything, we're kind of telling kids that, you know, we can tell a a monkey to climb a tree, but are you going to tell an elephant to climb a tree? It's like not everyone can do everything and that's okay. Everybody's got their strengths. Everybody's got their weaknesses. But also if you look at the tree, you could do different things with it. So maybe a monkey's going to climb it, but maybe an elephant's going to break it down and play with it. Like there's different ways to look at things and there's different ways to play with things, I guess. I love I love the monkey and the elephant metaphor because I feel like it asks the questions of what is the goal. So is the goal to get something that's at the top of the tree because the elephant can break the tree down and get the thing? Or is the goal just to play and have fun? And like you said, the elephant can have fun in a different way. So yes, the elephant's never going to climb the tree, but but why was the tree needing to be climbed? Was What was the goal? And can we accomplish that goal by taking different routes? Teaching circus is very much like that because uh, at least at our school in, in Somerville where I teach, we're a very body positive culture and we're a consent based culture and all the way from the time that they're 18 months to however old they are, um, we, everything is, is accessible to everybody at, at the level that they're at. And I don't think I've ever heard a teacher say you can do anything, but constantly we're asking the question, how can you do this? And how can we make this trick work for you? And sometimes we do have to say no, like your shoulders are only so flexible. And so this trick is not going to be accessible to you. If something changes about your shoulder flexibility, then it might be. But if it doesn't, then we're going to find a different trick with the same feeling or with the same evocative nature or the same feeling of, uh, you know, circular motion. So how can we, uh, accomplish what it is you're trying to accomplish, even if that particular route isn't accessible to you. Yeah, I love I love all of that so much. <laughs> and I love, I love the idea that us as people who are in front of children and working with children are modeling those things and modeling like, yeah, like, I need to go to the bathroom sometimes. And that's just like my body or like, yeah, I need to like, the kids, sometimes I get 
part of, so for me, narcolepsy, um, I don't have cataplexy, which is what people think about a lot uh, when they think of narcolepsy. It gets construed a lot in media, which is where um, I'm just like falling asleep out of nowhere. Basically, I just have chronic fatigue during the day. I get very tired during the day. And like just now this morning, I was like, hey, guys, like they're, they're like 18, 20 months uh, almost now. And um, I've been saying 18 months for like two months. It's 20 now. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've, even with them, I'll be like, hey, guys, like, you know, Seth's tired. Like, can you slow down for a minute? Or when even when I'm with my nieces who are older, it's just like modeling that like, hey, like sometimes we need different things or like our bodies or the ways that we need to do things are a little bit different. And they're so funny. They literally just come and sit next to me when I need to rest. And they'll like bring their toys there, but they want to like be right next, which is funny because like if I'm in the room, they don't care. But as soon as I go to bed, they're like, we must sit on Seth and bring our block. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. But um, so I'm curious sort of going off of that with being around children. uh, Have you sort of a two-part question, I guess, have you ever had like a child ask about your disability or your access needs or things like that and or how would you explain that to a child your disability or your needs so in this past school year I actually dyed my hair purple and I came to school the next day and I had emailed all the teachers and the principals to let them know that I was doing this because the color of ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease Um, the awareness ribbon is purple. Mm. And so I wanted to show awareness in the month of June. And I was also doing a five kilometer walk with my family to um, raise funds for research. So I just showed up at school one day with purple hair and the kids went wild and they were like, oh my gosh, why are you purple all of a sudden? We love it. And so it opened that, it opened the conversation of, um, oh, well, you know, I'm also wearing a purple ribbon and I'm wearing a purple shirt. And these are the reasons why. And I, um, with the younger kids, like kindergarten to grade two, which I mainly worked with last year, I told them that I have like my belly inside my belly, um, is a little bit like broken and that it hurts. Uh, it hurts me sometimes when I eat and I have to go to the bathroom a lot. And then they were like, oh, do you have diarrhea? And I was like, you know what that <laughs> is? And then you kind of make them like own it. Like, oh, I know what you're talking about. You're getting me excited because it's something I actually know. And then you kind of like build off of that. And a lot of kids know about cancer or they know about Alzheimer's or they know um, conditions that their grandparents have had or they've heard it talked around the house. So when you throw something big at them, like ulcerative colitis, they're excited to add it to their vocabulary and add it to their repertoire. And they're like, oh, I'm going to go home and explain to my mom what that is and my dad. And then with the older kids, like grade three to six, um, who I would see once in a while, they'd say, oh, you have purple hair. Is that for cancer research? And I was like, oh, well, no, actually, it's this. Mm. And I actually also have a tattoo that's hard to see, but it's purple. Uh, it's a purple rose. And so I made they made that connection. They're like, Oh, is that why you have a purple rose? Is it also for awareness? And so um, it, it, it seems really scary. And it seems really hard, because they don't know the vocabulary of like what a colon is, or what ulcers mean, or inflammation. But when you bring words like poop, or fart, or, you know, they're all about it, (laughs) research, walk, like, they understand a little bit more, and they can they can relate. And they could, they're excited about it. 
Yeah, yeah. I was just going to add, they're probably more comfortable talking about it than adults. Because yeah. I feel like adults are like, oh, God, now you're making me picture. And kids are like, I love picturing poop. It's yeah. hilarious. Yeah, that's so true. Some people were like, can you show me pictures of your insides? And I was like, that might be a little too, you know, no, I don't really want to tell you what a colonoscopy is yet. Hold on, on that one. <laughs> I find are just so interested and like they want to yeah. know about things. Like they, they don't have those like walls that adults have built up about like oh poop I don't want to talk I'm not supposed to talk about that or like that's gross they're just like cool I want to know about everything though I will say there's a threshold because I work a lot with fifth and sixth graders and by that age they're really self-interested and self-involved and they actually just don't really care that much about me (laughs) which I think is is really charming because my third and fourth graders in our social emotional class they'll ask me all sorts of questions especially I've been pregnant for the last two school years and they are so curious about everything. And the fifth and sixth graders are like, you know, like, we don't really have any questions. That's a little different, too, because it veers on, you know, reproductive health and sexual health. But when I was walking with a cane, I was like, okay, guys, I want to tell you, like, I'm walking with a cane, but it's just because I have uh, these, you know, this pain in my knees, and it's okay. And they're like, okay, (laughs) what, like, what time is chorus today? Like, they just didn't care. Because they're really just like, you know, and I think also everybody over 30 is just old. So they're used to like old people walk with canes or like they grunt when they walk. Yeah, I had a moment. uh, So the medications I take uh, along with the um, because my uh, muscles are constantly spasming, I get fatigue quite a lot. uh, And so I sleep a lot. And I was spending a week with my nephew and I had come down the stairs from a nap and he was sort of standing at the bottom of the stairs. And I was like, why do you sleep all the time? <laughs> <laughs> and in the moment, I was just kind of like, uh, uh, because that's what my body does. And then he was like, will you play Elsa and Anna with me? <laughs> I was like, yes, I will. <laughs> and we went and played Aww. Elsa and Anna. Um, <laughs> And, like, afterwards, I was like, oh, I wish I had, like, you know, a more, like, specific comeback about that, about, like, bodies are different and we all have different needs and things like that. But also I was like, I am not sure that that's what he needed in that moment where, like, he very clearly just wanted me to play with him and, like, had been wanting me to play with him for the last two hours while I was napping. Um, And so, like, Elsa and Anna were really what was on his mind right then but we do do a lot of like you know talking about bodies and how bodies are different and how bodies do different things and look different and like how that's you know really interesting and really cool and how like you know we all uh function differently and like how that's all right and um he I actually his dad I think actually does a really awesome job of uh working with him in terms of because uh he's uh his dad has anxiety and depression and whatnot and uh my nephew also I think uh has like he gets stomach aches and things that are like four-year-old manifestations of anxiety where it's like you know he's not so fond of uh large social situations uh like doing new things and stuff like that and so he had been talking to his dad about how he's different from other four-year-olds because he gets stomach aches a lot and his dad was like well you know uh I 
you know, also like have a hard time, you know, we can sometimes that can sometimes happen when you're, you know, nervous about things. And one of the things that I like to do is I do like exercises in the morning, and I like do some breathing stuff. And if you wanted to sort of join me, and you know, we could do those exercises together. And you know, we could do our like breathing exercises. And so like, the next morning, this was during the same week, they sort of got together and they did their like little exercises. And of course, you know, my brother-in-law was like, well, <laughs> I didn't get the best like workout in ever. But like, you know, because my nephew was like, I'm going to do the frog pose, <laughs> like, you know, just uh, sort of uh, doing his own thing. <laughs> but like, it was, I think, a really great example of of how you can acknowledge that uh this exists and that like yeah like our bodies are working differently from like other people's maybe and here are some things that we can do uh you know to like help with that um and it doesn't have to be like a bad or stigmatized thing um but like you know here's like some stuff and it can also be like kind of a bonding thing too with them that like you know we're gonna hang out and do some exercises in the morning and they had like a little breathing app that uh they they worked with and you know and um and you know I don't even know if they're doing it anymore but I think it was like an a, a really cool way of being able to like acknowledge and mm -hmm. uh recognize and also like take some action about like uh invisible disability and like even like you know I don't think either of them would necessarily categorize it <laughs> as invisible disability but uh certainly I think something that is very heavily stigmatized very often uh certainly like being able to be like all right this is something that's happening with the both of us Let's, you know, let's do something about it and see what happens. I'm curious, actually, because in Montreal, they're now making it um, mandatory that in high school, they have mental health classes to teach kids how to self-regulate and how to. Yeah, this is something new that they're 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 starting to develop. I was wondering if in the U.S. where you guys live, if that's even, you know, talked about or. No, no, in the works, not even. Okay. There are a few different um, cities, a few cities out of like hundreds of cities that are trying to put social emotional learning into their curriculum, uh, but it has not gained a lot of traction. It's really just starting to bud. And and like you say, mostly in, in high school and not in um, elementary school. But I have the privilege of working at an independent school. So this school, for as long as it has existed, has valued social emotional learning along with music and uh art and math and science and everything. Yeah. Maggie, your um your story about sleeping made me think about my my wife and I also nap a very a lot because she has depression anxiety. I have narcolepsy, so we both have nap times and uh we have been having um we had kind of a hard time like talking to her parents and getting them to really acknowledge and understand her anxiety and depression and they would like guilt her a lot of times if she needed to rest or something and so we we sort of were working with them and they've been getting a lot better and at one point after they had kind of been okay I think her mother even suggested she was like you seem tired you know we were out playing with our nieces and she was like you seem tired why don't you go rest and my niece was probably like four at the time and she went oh you're gonna take a nap 
and she like sang her the song that her mom sings when she takes a nap and like tucked her in and gave her her stuffed animal and was like okay have a nice nap (laughs) it was really cute and like that's That's what I think is so interesting about young children is that they just like don't even question it they're just like yeah I take naps too I get it like do whatever you need to do because that's what they're doing right they're just like very at that age like very self-centered and very just like doing what they need to do to exist and get by and right if I need to scream for 20 minutes to get that thing I'm gonna scream like it's just like kind of survival instinct so they're like of course if you need to take a nap like yeah. I get that me too <laughs> uh what before I got pregnant I was really really nervous about the my ability to have a baby and to chase after a toddler two years from whenever I had the baby and you know I watched my colleagues who are 20, 30 years older than me, and they're out playing touch football with the kids, and I can't do that. And so I think about what's it going to be like to have a three-year-old three years from now. Um, And so I talked with a number of friends who have similar uh, joint conditions to me and who have children. And, you know, I got some really great insight from them. And some of them were saying, well, my, my child knows that if she wants cuddle time, she comes and sits next to me instead of sitting on my lap, et cetera, et cetera. And the the most salient thing for me was that one person said, you are creating this world with your child. And so you are creating normal for them. And so they will just understand that your life is their normal and that maybe it looks different than other families, but it's still normal for your family because you're creating it with them. So I think there's really a capacity for educators to set that up with their students as well, that it's normal to notice differences, notice if someone is using a mobility aid, is an amputee, uh, you know, has um, Down syndrome. You can notice that people are different and in fact, encourage noticing differences. And we can be respectful and thoughtful in how we talk to each other and be interested in those differences and also accept that it's normal to have differences within our communities. I think a lot of times when we see kids being cruel and exclusive, it's because that wasn't normalized in their community and in their school community. So, cause of course kids have a huge capacity for cruelty, but they also have a huge capacity for compassion and empathy and for normalcy essentially of like, it's normal that you want to take a nap because people take naps. It's normal that you can't use the stairs because some people's bodies don't use the stairs, but it's when that isn't brought into the culture early on that we start to see this exclusivity and, and cruelty and, trying to force um, a dominant normal normalcy onto other people. I think there's a lot of, um, I see it happen a lot with adults where we feel like we can't show any kind of vulnerability around children, that we need to sort of mm-hmm. be perfect, whether it's emotional vulnerability, whether it's about things like this. Um, I just, you know, I'm thinking of one time where I, somebody yelled at me there was an incident while I was with a child that I had and I like cried in front of this child and I was like I need to make this a learning experience Seth is crying because he's sad or like whatever yeah and I I think about that a lot with disabilities and things like that too where it's like from the get-go you know so many I feel like most people are dealing with something and if we talk about that with kids and we normalize it like I don't I don't think I very strongly believe that there's no such thing as like adult issues. I think you could talk to kids about anything at their level. Like Leanna was saying about what, you know, just using different words, maybe not using the word colon, (laughs) but like any, I feel like you can talk to kids about pretty much anything. And, but yeah, it's just like, I think that a, you know, being those, like we were talking about before, like being that representation and visibility ourselves by talking to kids about stuff and being open, which is awesome. I mean, obviously like not everyone needs, you know, there's, 
you can be private about your life and you don't need to be an educator about everything. But as an educator, I just like can't help myself. And I want to, I like yeah. meet people and I'm like, hi, I'm Seth. I have narcolepsy. Yeah. Let me tell you about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, was like, and also like including all different kinds of representation. I feel like I say this every episode, but like in children's books and media, like doing as best as you can to like normalize those things from early on. So it's not the first time, you know, they interact with someone who's a wheelchair user the first time like right it's not like they've never seen this before and it's totally so can I ask you a question Seth yeah um so you're talking about uh (laughs) including representation in media like picture books and stuff like that so how do you think that applies to people with invisible disabilities how do we um you know you have your all the kids on the cover of the picture book and some of them are wearing are in wheelchairs or have um, prostheses, but how do we show invisible disabilities? That's a great question. I think that I would love to see more books about invisible disabilities. The only ones that I can think of are more mental health related. I, there's a really great book about depression called The Princess and the Fog. Oh, I see books. I have so oh, many. So <laughs> um, that's the one that comes to the top of my head. It's called The Princess and the Fog, and it's uh, it's about childhood depression. That's really excellent. But I think a lot of the books, or there's All Dogs Have ADHD is a really cute one, but a lot of them are more about, um, there's All Birds Have Anxiety. Um, but I think they're more with mental health things than I have seen with more like physical uh, stuff for invisible disabilities. And I, I think that that's, hey, publishers whoever is listening to this we want books we do (laughs) yeah Yeah. I would say I think it's harder to maybe have incidental inclusion of an invisible disability right because you can just have someone in a wheelchair in the background of your thing and it's like okay great that's visibility but unfortunately I think you know it, it might need to be a book that's like hey this is what this is this is what you know a little bit more of explanatory type books Um, Yeah, it's harder to quote unquote show it because it's invisible. Um, (laughs) You have to more tell it uh, in whatever way that takes. But I want whatever form that takes. Leanna, I want to hear about your books. I have a lot. (laughs) A lot, a lot. Um, How about, do you want me to give you my top three and then I can send you a list of all the ones I have? Okay. And then I also have Mac. If you guys have heard of it, it's more for the upper elementary grades or high school grades, but it's about a kid who has um, depression and the pictures are really beautiful. There's actually no words at all inside. And so it starts off with the kid running through rainbows and then the colors and the images kind of change and become more somber. And it's about him fighting um, Mm. with darkness, I I guess. I will say the thing that I love about the princess and the fog is that like, they at the end um they say it's not just like oh all these things happen and then her depression is cured but the sort of moral is like when it comes back now she has the tools and she knows who to go to and what to do um and so i because i think uh don't get i i i love that book looks amazing but i get frustrated when it's like the end of the book is everything's better and I think that that's something when there's no words, right? You can talk about that. You can say, well, what do we think happens after yeah, this, right? Yeah, or the next time that that person's sure. feeling that way or whatever. Um, but I, I really like yeah. that book because it has that little like epilogue that's like, uh, but. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or uh, 
the teacher that actually recommended me that book, she taught grade five and mm-hmm. six, and she said that she stops before the mm. end. So she leaves it open-ended and lets the students kind of make the ending or um, like talk about it as if like, okay, what happens next? What should this, you know, what I like could happen idea. next? Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have to finish a book, right? Even with kindergarten, you could read one or two pages in a day and, and read the whole book by the end of the week. You don't, you know, you have a choice. We were talking about this on another episode with like problematic books or like there was a book that my friend really liked, but there was, there was one page where like they were playing cowboy and Indian and she was like, I just glued those pages together. (laughs) It's like, we can, we can edit them or we can, you know, as adults, we can, uh, except for when they start to get old and then they're like, that's not what the words say. And you're like, honestly, that reminds me of my childhood. My parents used to like make us watch movies, but then edit out parts. Like of Bambi, like Bambi's mom never passed away. What are you talking about? That wasn't a thing. Wait, it, Lion King, what do you mean? Mufasa just disappeared. And <laughs> it was only until like high school that I was like, <laughs> I never watched a movie to its full potential. Like this is ridiculous. That's so funny. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I, I think it's cool too movie. when, especially like when they get old enough to like call you out on that, that you can be like, now, why do you think I didn't yeah. uh, didn't read that part? Like, you know, exactly. what, what do you think is, you know, what might be wrong with that? Like, and being able to actually, like, deconstruct yeah. with yeah. the kid, like, and, you know, I mean, you know, I <laughs> occasionally try and do that with my four-year-old nephew. And he's like, you know, comes up with some explanation that is absolutely not at all like you know which is fair where I'm like you're you're four like you know we're not going to deconstruct white privilege here uh yeah. like we've we've talked about it plenty <laughs> but like you know it might not be a conclusion that you get to on your own quite yet but uh you know uh it's it's I think once they get to that point I think it's a great time to be able to be like okay <laughs> then we're gonna talk about it like you call me out on it then yeah. uh then uh you're going to get to figure it out yourself. So I didn't bring a copy of it, but um, one of my favorite books in my social emotional learning classes is called Peach and Blue. And it's about um, a frog and a peach who become friends. Um, and it's not overtly about disabilities, actually. It's it's more about friendship and, and empathy. So I, I use it in, in a unit that I do about empathy. But I think that it's it's great, obviously, we're, we're sort of presuming here that when you read books with children, you're also having conversations with them. So I have great conversations with them about empathy and, and about ability, because in the story, this peach um, essentially is dying. The peach is going to die. And uh, this is a known sort of thing, even though the author doesn't say it quite overtly, but the peach wishes that, that she could see the world, but she can only see so much from where she is on the branch. So this frog gets together all his frog siblings and they figure out ways of helping her locomote so she can go see more of, uh, of the pond where she lives. And frog gets to see the world through her eyes um, or sorry, the frog's name is Blue. So Blue gets to see the world through her eyes, and and suddenly the pond that was very ordinary to him is is beautiful and rich and lush, and he has this new appreciation for where he lives because he's getting to see it through Peach's eyes. Um, and and so at no point are they like, well, you know, poor Peach, she can't walk. It's just sort of like this problem solving, like what we we're talking about, like how can we find a way for you to have this adventure. 
and and they do it you know so we used it to talk about allyship and about empathy and about um win-win situations and about uh you know how kindness then also nets you something (laughs) so Hey folks, we are back officially. Thank you so much for your patience. Uh, While I just got some personal things situated, I'm really excited to be back and I'm really excited to have you all here as listeners. Hooray. Thanks for sticking with us. Um, So unfortunately I have a little bit of bad news this episode, which is that we lost the second half of Johnny's audio for some strange reason. I am not a technical genius, so I'm not exactly sure why that happened, but uh, that is why Johnny is quiet in the second half of the episode, which is unfortunate because they had a lot of great things to say. Um, But hopefully we'll have them back on again in the future so you'll get to hear from them again. As I've mentioned before, we have this great partner, Shift Book Box, and this hopefully will be the last week that you're going to have to hear this from me, and you'll be able to hear it straight from the founders, uh, Rebecca and Crystal. Basically, it's this really cool kids book subscription box that gets delivered to you monthly and they have really similar themes to the things we talk about like disability different raw religions and cultures uh, bodies just really really stellar stuff and you get that delivered to you monthly and they also not only do you get two books each month your subscription also comes with these really cool guides for grown-ups that help you navigate those conversations with kids just sort of like what we talk about here so it's really really awesome i definitely encourage you to check it out and you can do so at www.shiftbookbox.com next week will be the first time that we will start our new segment with rebecca and crystal so you're going to hear from us talking about invisible disabilities and some book recommendations for that theme I actually just received my first shift book box, um, which I'm really excited about, and I'm going to do a little unboxing of it, uh, which will be on our social media, so look out for that. As always, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at radchildpodcast, or you could reach out to us uh, via email as well. It's radchildpodcast at gmail.com. Please, please, if you can rate, review, and share the podcast, it really means a lot. Uh, Word of mouth is the best way to um, get listeners, and uh, we just really, really appreciate it if you like the work that we're doing, if you could share it with someone who you think might also appreciate it. We also recently updated our Patreon with some new new little rewards and perks, so you can check that out at patreon.com slash radchildpodcast. You can donate as little as a dollar a month, uh, and that really helps us be able to cover our costs and keep this going. Um, And lastly, if you would like to be a guest on an episode, uh, you can go to our website, www.radchildpodcast.com, and uh, it's pretty easy to navigate. There's a form on there under the contact section. Uh, There's a form on there that you can fill out, a little application, and we'll absolutely reach out if we think that you're a good for a future episode. Um, There's all sorts of themes that we're thinking about doing, so anything that you think might be remotely something that we might cover, um, yeah, definitely feel free to reach out to us. All right, without further ado, back to the show. So I think, I mean, we talked about this a little bit, but I'm curious, like, if you've ever had an experience um, 
where someone maybe didn't believe that you were, you know, were disabled or because there's no quote unquote proof, like we were talking about before with mobility devices or things like that. There's no visual cue. Um, and, you know, how do we, going off of that, how do we explain to kids that, oh, it, even if we can't see it, right, it's still there? Yeah, I am in the process of applying for uh, SSI. Um, and uh, it's a, uh, pretty harrowing process because uh, I've been uh, denied twice now and it's not at all uncommon uh, to be like they say you know expect to yeah to you know and it takes you know they say it takes you know at least two months to you know go through and it can take up to two years to be uh, accepted into it and uh, luckily, I'm getting uh, private disability uh, payments from my work. But it is truly like every time you sort of get a letter from the government that sort of is like, no, we deny your claim because of this, this and this reason. That is basically like because you can, you know, lift over 20 pounds, you can stand all day uh, at a job, you can do all these things that are just inherently untrue, <laughs> where it's like, no, I cannot do these things. Um, and I think that it's interesting, too, because I think that I fight with it a lot in myself, that like, I very much come from a, a family of like, uh, sort of grin and bear it and like, uh, you know, be a strong woman, like in your, like, you know, value is very much on like productivity and on like, you know, what you do for other people and things like that. And so if you aren't producing and aren't helping other people, then you aren't a person of value. And therefore, uh, uh, as a result of being a person with a disability, uh, you know, your value is inherently less. Um, and so to have like, uh, you know, the government essentially like reinforcing these ideas um, is uh, incredibly difficult in ways that I didn't expect because I was like, oh, I, I know that it's really hard to get SSI and like that I'll be denied you know a couple of times and especially because I have a disability that's not like on the that's fairly uncommon and it's not on the um like official list of disabilities and whatnot um yeah whatever that means uh and so uh there's that and I think just like the thing of like being on the, a subway train and not wanting to ask someone to like give up their seat because I look like a healthy, a quote unquote healthy, like young person. Um, and I feel like I, I have a little pin that says invisible illness club. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and then I have, and it's next to my ask me for a seat button. Uh-huh. <laughs> And I have to just be like, and one time somebody tried to fight me about it. Yeah. And I, and actually I even had a knee brace on that day for a totally unrelated, <laughs> not let's related reason. And they were like, um, this seat is for disabled people. And I literally pointed to my knee and I was like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have a, a few different friends who have EDS and other, um, 
joint disorder who will carry a cane just as a signifier. So even if they don't need it or like me, it actually makes the problem worse. Just having a cane. I found when I was carrying one, it it keeps people kind of at a radius around you or like they hold the door for you. And it's these funny signifiers. Yeah. That are ultimately meaningless, like ironically, like to your actual body, but are quite meaningful in the broader world. Yeah, but I, I have to say I have a lot of sympathy for folks on the subway who are questioning me because I feel like my automatic response when I see someone able-bodied sitting is that I question why they're not getting yep. up to let the pregnant person sit mm-hmm. down. So I think I think it's natural. It's just it's more that yeah. I wish our culture was open to having conversations that were that didn't start as combative or or didn't didn't have to be quite so simple or so accusatory that that we could just have a conversation that's like, oh, I notice you're sitting in that seat. Um, are you in a place where you could offer your seat to this pregnant person? Maybe you didn't notice yeah. them, you know, instead of like immediately judging. And so I noticed myself doing it. And it's just part of our culture that we, we jump to judgment instead of question. I definitely had a moment where I was like, as a nanny, right, there was someone, I was sitting on the subway and there was someone who I was presuming to be pregnant who was standing in front of me. And I was literally like staring at their belly, like, oh, I wonder how far along they are, blah, blah, blah. And it never occurred to me to offer my seat. Like, not much. <laughs> and then the person next to me, and I was like, I was so busy, like, wondering, like, how far along they were. And I was like, oh, there's a beautiful, whatever. Great. Well, we get in our own heads. Yeah. It's so funny. But going off of that, I'm curious, like, so what, uh, like, what advice do you think we could, you know, give able-bodied folks or, you know, folks who don't have invisible disabilities sort of to try and, like, not perpetuate those stigmas or end those kinds of stigmas or thoughts? You know what, I'm going to combine the two questions because I didn't answer the previous one, but I wanted to say that um, like when I take my medication, I, I do a self-injection every month and right after for about a week, I need to wear a mask because otherwise like I'm very, um, I'm, my immune system is, the, sorry, wait, what's it called? Immunosuppressed. So it's suppressed and I need to just, you know, take care of myself, especially if I'm in public settings or like in the grocery store or in a school even. And so like after working at a school for a year, the kids kind of understand. But when you're in a, because I've talked to them about it, obviously, I wear a mask and they say, Oh, why are you wearing that? Are you sick? And you know, and then you tell them, Oh, I'm on a medication. And, you know, because of my, my, uh, my stomach and my, my insides, you know, I have to protect myself. If you're sick, you can get me sick very, very easily. But if I go on to public transport, people don't even ask, you know, and I don't know if it's the same way with the cane where they'll give up their seats, but I almost get like dirty looks like, oh, because you're sick, I don't want to ask you about it. And I also, I'm just going to give you my seat because I feel bad for you. Like that's how it comes off. So I'd almost wish like if I could talk to them about it, I almost say like, hey, if you're curious about why I'm wearing this mask or if you're curious why somebody has a cane, just ask, openly ask. Like, I don't mind sharing my story with you. I would actually prefer to raise awareness about it rather than be given those looks or have you jump to the worst case scenario or make assumptions about it. So if I could tell, you know, adults especially, I'd say, hey, if you see something that you're not used to, be open about it, ask questions, and then share your an- share the answers you get with your kids. So that they, because kids are going to look at their parents and look at their um, social, like, sorry, their um, nonverbal cues, 
and kind of take on from them. So if a parent is giving dirty looks, the kids are going to model that, are going to, you know, mimic it and they're going to do the same thing. So if you're not having these conversations and learning more about the differences in the world, then your kids are going to, they're not going to learn either. I'd say like building off of that, questions I'd like them to ask is, hey, I noticed that, um, you know, you're wearing a mask today. Would you mind explaining why? Or saying, um, like, hey, I noticed that you have a cane or you bring a cane to work every day, but you don't use it every day. Is there a reason for it? And is there anything I could do to make, like to help you, your mobility, or can I help you, you know? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I guess I would say if you ask questions, don't be, you know, if some some people, I, I feel it sort of similarly with being, as being a trans person, like I am very open to answering questions, but not every trans person is. And I tell people when they ask me questions, I might frame it like, hey, some people would find that question inappropriate. You know, I wouldn't necessarily ask everyone, but I am going to answer that question for you. You know what I mean? And I think like if you ask someone a question I and if they say, hey, it's really none of your business and I don't want to talk about it, I wouldn't be like offended by that. You know what I mean? I would just say, you're right. It is kind of none of my business. And, and ask yourself why you're asking that question. If it's someone, if it's a stranger, why are you asking that question? Um, if it's someone like you were saying um, about like, if maybe I see my teacher has a cane sometimes and I'm saying, Hey, is there something that I can do that's more helpful to you? Can I collect the homework and bring it up? Or is it hard for, you know what I mean? Like, what can I, so that I think is a different, but I think when people are asking questions about anything, ask yourself why you're asking that question before you ask it. I think it's also important, at least for me to acknowledge that uh, I, as a result of having an invisible disability, have a certain amount of privilege uh, in the world of being able to uh, uh, sort of uh, navigate the world as someone who doesn't uh, necessarily appear to be a person with a disability. Um, and it's funny, I talk with a lot of friends about it having sort of, it's like a double-edged privilege where it can both give me, uh, it prevent me from having access to certain uh, uh, services and things like the seats on the subway and things like that, but also... Uh, means that I don't necessarily get a certain amount of, um, of uh, the uh, discrimination that a lot of people with visible disabilities do get. Um, and so I think that's also an important thing to acknowledge when talking about invisible disabilities, that uh, yeah. that is something that also exists. Um, and, in, um, and in terms of things that uh, I would like people to know. I think one is that just because someone looks okay and acts okay, doesn't mean that they're necessarily pain-free or uh, emotionally happy <laughs> or like, you know, emotionally uh, carefree. Um, I think that uh, chronic pain especially is really boring. Um, that to me is like the overriding, uh, like, yeah, it is like the overriding like impression of the last couple of years where like if people ask you how you are and like if I was to answer honestly that question to every single person, I would bore myself to death. Like it's it's truly like I I it's just not that interesting. Um 
because the answer would usually be very long and very detailed and like, you know, and, and often like a very similar answer day after day, uh, with like slight variations. (laughs) Um, and so just because I'm not telling you that I have a headache or that I, you know, I'm experiencing neck pain or whatever, doesn't mean that I'm not. It's more just that like, (laughs) I don't want to use the time that I have oh. when I'm awake to like talk to you about I it because <laughs> it's not that interesting. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, I think it's kind of this interesting line between like, and I think, you know, between wanting there to be resources for people and wanting there to be this conversation, but also not having that expectation that you're always gonna get the answers and sometimes like you don't always even want the answers like you were saying if someone's like oh how are you and they really might genuinely care maybe they don't want your like two-hour dissertation about how you're feeling (laughs) and there may be some days when I absolutely need to tell you like how I'm doing and like thank you for like genuinely asking and being there and for like listening to (laughs) what I have to say but also don't be insulted if I'm like I'm fine (laughs) But I think I think about that a lot with kids too, like we were saying before with age appropriate responses. Like when a kid says, Hey, what's ulcerative colitis? They don't want your textbook definition. Yeah. <laughs> they don't. You know, and I mean, you know, depending on the age of the kid, maybe if it's, you know, an eighteen year old, they might want that. But you know, if a five year old asks you that, first of all, I'd be very impressed if they could pronounce it. Um, but, <laughs> but you know what I mean? If they ask you that question, they don't necessarily want like like Maggie was saying earlier when your nephew said, "Why do you sleep so much?" They didn't want that answer. They wanted, "Can we play Anna and Elsa now?" Um, you know, and mm-hmm. so I I think about that a lot with the amount of information we're giving kids too. Uh, is that it varies sort of on like. Hmm, what are they? What do they actually want right now? And what, you know, how old are they? And all these different things. <laughs> I love that though. When they ask one question, and you're just like, "That's not what you want." That's not the actual <laughs> question. Yep. Yep. Um. So I guess this is. We kind of talked about this a little bit already, but I guess I would say if there was one thing, if you didn't get to speak on this already, if there was one thing that you could like impart on adults about, you know, who interact with kids, about how to approach folks with invisible disabilities? Like, what what would it be? Not even how to approach, but, like, that topic. You know what I mean? Read books and have discussions. Sit down with your kid or sit down with your students and have an open – just have them think of a question that they want to ask the class or, you know, like, have them ask you anything. And you'll be surprised by how many – things kids observe but don't Mm. have the chance to talk about and how curious they are to learn more about something that's not in the curriculum or that you know they saw on tv or they saw on youtube and they just they just want to you know make sense of it and don't be afraid to just tell them as it is like I find people tiptoe around kids but like you said you know you can a discussion you can have with a adult can also be had with a kid as long as you make it age appropriate yeah. and I love I love books yeah they're my I feel like they're my answer in every episode to everything I'm just like books about it and if you can't find books that exist like you can tell stories like if that's something yeah. that you do I mean my 
nephew like loves when I tell him stories. And so I'm constantly looking for like new topics of like, God, like what can, you know, what can Bossy the cow and, you know, William do today in our story? Like, you know, there's, I, I need something new to talk about. So like, you know, figure out a way to work uh, an invisible disability or a character with an invisible disability into into a story that you're telling uh, your kid. Uh, and, you know, that can be a, a conversation starter or just a part of the story. Like it doesn't, kids often are listening in ways that, especially when it's like in the midst of something that they're, they're already engaged in, like they'll listen in ways that I think we don't necessarily always even like we don't recognize. Um, and so I think that can have a, a big impact. Um, yeah. in in how they frame the world and yeah, it just acknowledging the existence of them <laughs> in whatever way that is, uh, in whatever way you can do that is great. I think one in one of the other episodes, I forget. Oh, we were, we were talking about families and different kinds of families. And um, we were talking about when we're watching things, how we have the ability in the same way, how we have the ability to edit books. We have the ability to pause and say, hey, did you notice that this character does this differently? And like, why do you think that is? And have conversations about things. And I love if we forget we have the power sometimes. You can pause anything these days, even regular TV. Not like back in the day. You had to walk up to your TV and turn it on and stuff. Um, I, sometimes I feel really, are you ever like around kids and you just feel so old? Like I, I was babysitting a 12 year old and he was like, Seth, I got to show you this really old song I found. And I was expecting like, you know, like an oldie. And he played on blue, dabba dee, dabba die. And I was like, cool. I was like, that's from when I was in elementary school. That's not old. Oh my gosh. You know, those good oldies. And your first conversation doesn't have to be your last. Also, if you mess it up the first time, you can always be like, so let's go back to what we were talking about before. And I say this with, mm -hmm. uh, I'm a sex educator and say this about like sex talks with your kids all the time where it's like it, the sex, quote unquote, oh, sex talk okay. is not a one time thing. Uh, like it's, it's a very long conversation. And so like it, having, you know, a single bad conversation with your kid or a single conversation that goes quote unquote wrong, it doesn't mean that you've messed it up forever. Uh, yeah. Luckily you have lots and lots of time to uh, make it. It's so funny because before I am babysitting for these two older kids they are like seven and nine uh, this weekend and they love Dungeons and Dragons. And so I'm going to run a campaign for them. And I was sitting here before we, uh, right before this, in fact, I was reading through the campaign. I'm doing like a pre-written one because I'm not that kooky that I'm going to write one. This is my first time DMing, so I'm going to be easy on myself. And I was reading through it and I was like, this is such good practice for that because you have no idea what your players are going to do and you have to be able to think on your feet. And I'm sitting there and I was kind of rehearsing and I was like, what if they decide to do this thing? Then what can I say? And what if they decide to do that thing? Then what can I do? And it was so funny because like you saying that, I was like, this is really good practice for having conversations with kids. So my advice is become a dungeon master. Um, no. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yep. Done.
figured it out. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think we think about conversations like that a lot as things that like we can pra- practice it. And I think like Maggie was saying, it's this idea of there's the talk that you have about race or the talk that you have about, like, it's just one sit down thing and you're like, okay, we're done forever. Um, and, you know, if you don't practice those things and you don't continue having those conversations, how are your feelings and thoughts going to develop about it too, right? Because none of us know everything. Uh, and, you know, we need to practice and we need to develop our own thoughts and help our kids develop, you know, or the kids that we interact with develop their thoughts too. Um, so something that I uh, forgot to ask in the beginning, this is you know, usually my, uh, going to be my little opening question from now on, but I forgot. Is I'm curious um, if there if there was ever a time where a kid in your life asked you a question that you weren't prepared to answer doesn't have to be about disability can be about disability. Um, I have one because I actually still don't know the answer, and maybe you guys can help me. So last <laughs> year I taught gender and identity, which is the sexuality sexuality education that's just been introduced to Quebec, and we had to make our own curriculum for it because nobody did it for oh, us yeah so I had to teach grade four and grade six uh, about gender and identity and so we watched a few videos and a few actually we listened to some pod- podcasts too which was really cool about um gender non-binary and uh transgender and like everything under the umbrella and kids had a lot of questions and one of them that stumped me was how do you ask someone what their pronoun is and I was like, and it made me think of that when Johnny was saying, well, you have to think about why they're asking that question. So is it because they want to be respectful to the person and, you know, use the right pronoun? Are they saying it because uh, they don't want to embarrass themselves and say the wrong pronoun and, and, you know, insult that person? Are they asking? So they asked me, how do you, how do you ask somebody for their pronoun? And I was, I was so going off. as a cis person, I usually say, hi, my name is Maggie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Uh, what are yours? Yeah, you can, offering is a really good one. Um, you can also, depending on where you are and, you know, what kind of space you're in, like we were talking about before, like I, if I'm in a space where I feel safe, I will ask pronouns or offer pronouns. Um, if you're in a space, for example, where you might be putting name tags on, you can encourage people to put their pronouns on their name tags. Um, you can wait and listen. If you're in a social situation and you don't know someone's pronouns, you can wait till someone talks about them and be like, okay, they said they, they pronounce they, great. Um, Cause it's not always, even for like, I'm a trans person and I'm not always comfortable just asking people's pronouns. Um, so yeah, that was, that would be okay. Thank you. Unfortunately, I think sometimes it takes folks from the dominant culture to almost like validate, make it seem more valid to other folks in the dominant culture. Yeah, which is why, you know, allies are so important and why what I was thinking about when we were talking about what we can do and what other people can do is like educate, your, educating yourself too is so important about learn about different disabilities, learn about different kinds of people, learn about different things. Because when your kid asks you a question about it, you can't answer it if you don't know. <laughs> so yeah, I think that was a great example of just asking a question and you got the answer. Woo-hoo. I know. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> I wanted to give y'all the opportunity, if you wanted, just to plug any projects or things that you do, um, if you have anything that you want to plug. Uh, I run a theater company called Honest Accomplice Theater. 
uh, and you can visit our website at honestaccomplice.org. We also have a video series uh, called The Trans Literacy Project. You can find our videos up there. It's created uh, by our uh, trans ensemble members, and uh, it is a whole series that, uh, that provides a lot of different information uh, created by trans folks uh, for uh, cis and trans people uh, just sort of to ease the burden of education that trans people often have to do uh, about uh, trans identities. There's a lot of good answers to questions like how do you ask for pronouns? <laughs> it's true. You may you may see a little uh, Seth, uh, Seth Day in some of them as well. Uh, true, I was, uh-huh. I was there. <laughs> Leanna, did you have anything to share or are you? No, I'm totally going to shout out to my nieces though, because I love them so much. And <laughs> Yeah. And um, they are, I can't say they're the reason that I went into teaching, but they're definitely my everyday like push to keep going because I Aww. want them to be as amazing as you guys all are with the way you think about life. So I'm going to just call out to Chloe and Emily and my nephew Leo in Switzerland because I love them all very much. <laughs> yeah, you have to be equal. Yeah, we do. we do. I know my wife and I were just talking yesterday. We just found out she has guessed, successfully guessed every pregnancy in our family. She's always like, my sister's not drinking wine. She's pregnant again. Like, you know, <laughs> she always, or she's like, they were talking about moving them into a, their same room. They need that third room for a baby. Like she can always guess. And um, my, uh, oh gosh, no, I lost my train of thought again. Oh, it probably wasn't. Important. Guessing pregnancies. Oh, no, no. Oh, it was the it was the um the favorites, and I was talking yesterday, and I was like, I'm sorry, but Clemence is my favorite, even if there's a new one. Oh. Like, I'm, I definitely have a favorite niece, and it's Clemence. <laughs> <laughs> They're francophone; they don't listen to this. <laughs> it's funny though because they speak French, and the the parents are bilingual, but they have only taught the kids French. And so my niece is uh, was about three at the time when she started to realize that I spoke English. She thought that I was very shy for a long time, <laughs> and then she realized that I spoke another language. And so we were all at the dinner table, and she turns to her mom in French and says, "You know, I'm going to speak to Seth in English now." And then turns to me and just goes, "Blah blah blah blah." blah. <laughs> <laughs> Just one moment. I'm going to speak English. Blah, 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 blah. When we had a conversation like that, I was like, you're right, it is sunny out. She was like, blah, 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 blah. Speaking like Spanish, like the language that the to speak in the video. Anyway. Oh my God. So good. Well, on that note, thank you all so much for being here. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for dealing with the technical difficulties uh, and the headphone search of 2019. <laughs> Found them. <laughs> yes. Um, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening. As always, I've included some links on our show notes if you want to learn more about the various disabilities and conditions that we talked about today. I encourage you to do your own research as well. Talk to people, ask questions like we were talking about. So yeah, I hope you guys find that helpful. And just one last thing, unfortunately, uh, in the midst of all of this personal stuff that's been going on, one of the things is that my computer died and I lost all of my files. So I no longer have the thank yous recorded. I'm going to have to redo them, uh, which is fine because we have to update them anyway. There's probably more people to thank, but that means that this episode we don't have our usual musical thank yous so apologies for that 
Uh, but other than that, have a great week. See you next time. Hi, I'm Julian McKenzie. And I'm Tristan Damore. We're the co-hosts of the Scrum Podcast, a show that analyzes the current sports media landscape in Canada. Join us every Monday as we break down trends, interview Canadian sports media personalities, and discuss stories that matter. You can find us on the Upford Network, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you get podcasts like... Stitcher. SoundCloud. Google Play Music. Uh, Spotify. How about Spider Podbean? It's making a great comeback, as I hear. Yeah, how, how are shares for that, by the way? Yeah, well... Next question. Uh, message in a bottle. Uh, crowded alley in uh, the Bell Center. Uh, Joe Rogan's bunker. Crowded alley in the Air Canada Center. No, Burn. actually, it's uh, uh, Scotiabank Arena now. Yeah. But I still say uh, Air Canada Center. Anyway. Yes. Listen to our shit, please. Please. The Scrum Podcast on the Upford Network or anywhere else you get podcasts. On September 16, 1993, NBC aired the first ever episode of Frasier, a spin-off series about psychiatrist Dr. Frasier Crane, a much-loved Seattle shrink from Cheers. Ten days earlier, a baby was born. A baby who, we'd come to learn, was destined to have someone pay him $264 to watch through every episode of Frasier with different special guests, unpacking the deeper themes behind each episode. That baby is me, Tom Zalatnai, and this is a terrible, terrible idea. Tune in to They're Calling Again, right here on the Upford Network.